You see, you don't need God to fulfill a God-shaped vacuum of loved starvedness within you. You need God to fulfill your sinful, human-shaped depravity with a true righteousness, which will allow you to enter into a relationship with Him. Only God can provide the full satisfaction of your desire for righteousness, and so you must seek Him for it. And that is his expression of love to you and the means by which you enter into the fullness of the experience of the love of God. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. And all these things will be added to you. You want these other things in the world that you you think that you need? Well, the ones you actually do need, God will provide for you as you seek His righteousness. In fact, the pursuit of righteousness tends to then remove your desire for anything that you don't need. God then brings the provision of those things that are necessary. Isaiah 55, 2. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Do you see how scripture constantly puts these things in terms of satisfaction and very often, again, appealing to hunger, thirst, to be satisfied in eating and drinking as a a metaphor for describing what is necessary in salvation? Why Why are you throwing your money away for something that won't actually satisfy you? Again, it would be like a starving man going and paying to buy plastic fruit. You know those little things your kids play with? My kids have got, you know, this, I find food everywhere in the house, but it's not edible. I trip over plastic apples, and they've got their kitchen, and, and I've got three girls now in my house. Now, my son is still there, but he's overridden, I think, by the three girls, because their stuff is always there, and, and they, they want to cook, and they want to do all these things. Well, you, they can't eat that food. It would be foolish for someone who was actually dying of starvation to go to the store and purchase a whole, you know, whole rack of fake fruit. But it's what you do with your lives. You are purchasing things that cannot satisfy you. You are pursuing things that will not bring you the satisfaction that you actually need. Our young people are starting college, many of you, these past couple of weeks. What are you seeking there? Are you seeking the success of good grades? Well, it's nice to get good grades. It will not satisfy. Are you seeking a relationship? Ah, many of you are. Maybe not necessarily at college itself, but in that time of life. And relationships are wonderful and have a form of satisfaction. But apart from true righteousness, they will not bring what you desire. Many of you have already discovered that. Are you seeking the acceptance of your peers, young people? It will not satisfy. It's like buying plastic fruit. You're going to spend a lot of time and effort and energy to receive that which will never give you what you actually need. You need real bread. The end of Isaiah 55, 2, God calls out to Israel. He says this, listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. That's what I'm calling you to. In, in, In the call to hunger 
and thirst for righteousness. That is not, this is not some kind of ascetic lifestyle, which, which then leads to, to this, this pain life where it looks like you're under this heavy load, constantly trying to pursue some kind of, of legalistic self-righteousness. That's what many of you think of when you think of the pursuit of righteousness, but it isn't that. It is the pursuit of that which truly brings your satisfaction, that brings a true smile of joy to your face as you pursue it. That's the life you need. But you can't find it if you keep throwing down your money for things that can never satisfy. And the world, unfortunately, and and even the Christian world, is doing that to a far greater extent than, than it should. So to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to recognize and grieve over our lack of righteousness, and to passionately and continually pursue Christ through the Word of God as the only source of true righteousness. John MacArthur says this, Jesus declares that the deepest desire of every person ought to be to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is, the Spirit-prompted desire that will lead a person to salvation and keep him strong and faithful once he is in the kingdom. It is also the only ambition that when fulfilled brings enduring happiness. A hunger and thirst for righteousness then is the fundamental part of kingdom living. And so let's look at our next point, the need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why is this so necessary? Why is righteousness required to enter into the kingdom and to live in the kingdom? Now, this is not something, unfortunately, that you will hear in most gospel presentations in our current age. What you will hear in most gospel presentations is that you are in need of love. And if you could just get a little more love, if you could just be loved, then you would be happy. Now, love is very important. God is love. But I will tell you this at the very beginning. God's love is already extended. God's love has already been given as it were. It's already been demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. But you will never access that love that God has already poured out on your behalf unless you are holy. And so the first cry, the first presentation of any gospel presentation should be, you need righteousness. For you will never experience love until you are holy. You see, you don't need God to fulfill a God-shaped vacuum of loved starvedness within you. You need God to fulfill your sinful, human-shaped depravity with a true righteousness, which will allow you to enter into a relationship with Him. Only God can provide the full satisfaction of your desire for righteousness, and so you must seek Him for it. And that is His expression of love to you and the means by which you enter into the fullness of the experience of the love of God. Hunger and thirst, says John MacArthur, represent the necessities of physical life. Jesus' analogy demonstrates that righteousness is required for spiritual life, just as food and water are required for physical life. Righteousness is not an optional spiritual supplement, but a spiritual necessity. We can no more live spiritually without righteousness than we can live physically without food and water. So let's look at two aspects of this righteousness. The righteousness, number one, that is necessary to enter into the kingdom. And remember that in each of these Beatitudes, both of these seem to be in view. There is the living within the kingdom. And I believe that's the thing that is fundamentally emphasized. That is, how do you live when you're in the kingdom? But behind that, and really foundational to each of these Beatitudes, is that they're necessary to get into the kingdom. You have to be poor in spirit before you can enter in, and you remain poor in spirit after. You have to mourn over sin to get into the kingdom, and you mourn evermore afterwards. You have to be gentle, submitting your will to get into the kingdom, and you are ever increasingly gentle afterwards. What is the same for hungering and thirsting for righteousness? 
In this very sermon, Jesus reveals this in two ways, two statements that he makes. Matthew 5, 20 says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That which goes beyond an external righteousness, an external obedience to the commandments, a true heart obedience to them, which is only possible with the righteousness granted by Christ himself. And then Matthew 5, 48 probably says this most clearly. Jesus says to them, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard. That's how you get into the kingdom. And so we need the righteousness of justification. That's what scripture calls it. This is Christ's perfect righteousness. This is not a righteousness which is innate in you. It is not something that you can perform. It is not something that you can can create. This is the righteousness of God himself which must be imputed to you. That is, it must be granted to you on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. Philippians 3, 9, Paul says it this way. When he he speaks of the, the bankruptcy of the righteousness, which he tried to accomplish in the law. And in fact, he says in in Philippians chapter 3, that according to that kind of righteousness, the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness, he was blameless. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Was he actually perfect? No. But according to the external standard, was he living according to it? And that would include having his sins washed away at the temple as he took sacrifice. The Pharisees did that. They understood the nature and the need of that. So Paul says, I did all of that. But it is insufficient. He says in verse 9, And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The righteousness needed for entrance into the kingdom cannot be gained by human effort. It is a perfect righteousness. What is needed is the righteousness of Christ himself imputed to our account. And only in this way can our righteousness be sufficient in order to have a true relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 5 21, for he made, for he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange, he takes upon himself our sinfulness, not actually becoming sinful, but bearing the penalty. He gives to us his righteousness, not making us in actuality righteous, but enabling us to receive the full benefit of his own righteousness. This is imputed. This is a legal righteousness granted. This is a status before a holy God. We are seen as having the righteousness of Christ. This is gained by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We receive it through a legal transaction called justification in which we are declared to be righteous on the basis of Christ's sacrifice, removing the penalty of our sin, and then on the basis of Christ's righteousness being imputed to our account. Turn to Romans chapter 3. You're familiar with this, but it's essential that I cover it so that you are reminded of where this righteousness for entrance into the kingdom comes. Because you must not confuse it with the righteousness that you live out when you are in the kingdom. They are tied together. They are flip sides of the same coin, but they're not the same kind of righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, and the Apostle Paul has just made it very clear that all men are judged by the law, that the perfect standard of God's righteousness cannot be lived up to according to the law by either Jews or Gentiles. No one in the world is capable 
So he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. God's perfect, holy standard being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe this righteousness that is Christ's own God's righteousness as lived out through Jesus, both in his active work on earth, as well as in his innate character as God. This righteousness comes only to those who believe. And he says, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one has this righteousness. But verse 24, being justified, there's our legal term, declared legally righteous, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption. That is the price that Jesus paid through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. That's how we receive the righteousness necessary to enter into the kingdom. And it is absolutely essential because God is infinitely holy and infinitely righteousness. Nothing less than an infinite righteousness can enable us to have an eternal relationship with the perfect, holy God of the universe. Nothing in your own righteousness could ever accomplish this. The scriptures could not be more clear that the righteousness necessary for salvation is not according to works, but it is God's special and undeserved gift on the basis of the work of Christ alone. Romans 5.17 For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, that one is Adam, and his sin was imputed to our account as it were, and so therefore death reigned upon all because of the sin of Adam imputed to the human race. It says, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ, his righteousness imputed to us, overcoming the sin of the first Adam, the second Adam overcoming that and providing us righteousness. And that is only gained by faith. We believe we cannot work for that righteousness. So that is the righteousness that is necessary to enter into the kingdom. But, and I think probably the primary emphasis of our text is the righteousness which we live out within the kingdom that is based upon, that finds its foundation in the righteousness of Christ granted to us. Now that righteousness is perfect. That righteousness that we receive, that is imputed to us, that we legally receive as a result of Christ's sacrifice, it never changes. It's full. You can't can't cause it to increase. It never grows. It is full because it's the righteousness of Christ. But this righteousness now that we live out within the kingdom, based upon the fact that we can be viewed by God as righteous, he renews our hearts, he grants us the spirit of God, he he makes us a new creation, and then he empowers us to live out or to actually accomplish real acts of righteousness that grow in character. That's called sanctification. And we must not confuse the two. You do not increase your justification. You do not add to the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. It's already there. It's eternal. It's granted completely the moment you believe. But the righteousness then that we live out within the kingdom is based upon what God has granted us in Christ and flows out of the work of the Spirit of God in us through a renewed nature that He has graciously given to us and then enables us to perform acts of righteousness which grow in their character. This is the righteousness produced in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. You do no cooperation in order to be justified. God's work alone. But in order to live out this kind of righteousness, we then work with the Spirit of God, He working in and through us, and we with our mind and will and affections pursuing Him to grow in this sanctification righteousness. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared 
bringing salvation to all men. And that would include our justification, the alien righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that is not our own. But it says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's sanctification. On the basis of our salvation, we are able then to live out this sanctification righteousness. Those who have entered into the kingdom through the righteousness of Christ will always exhibit a love of and desire for the practical righteousness empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see, unlike the righteousness of justification, which is imputed to our account and is fully complete at the moment of salvation, the righteousness of sanctification flows from the new nature put within us by the Holy Spirit and grows as we cooperate with him in putting the principles of Scripture into practice with ever-increasing skill. That's our goal. We must be righteous in the first way, through faith, trusting in Christ, recognizing our sin, and throwing ourselves upon him as the only hope for salvation. And then, as the new nature is born within us, and that righteousness that we receive from Christ enables us to have a right relationship with the Holy God, we live out by his power the righteous desires which he has placed within us. 1 Peter 1.14 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. When we have been transformed when we have been made new creatures in Christ, the thing that we long for more than anything else is to look like the one who saved us. To look like the very one that we've been unified with, and that is Christ. We long for this. And if you do not long for it, if it is not, if it is not in your heart, in your mind and will and affections to have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you have never been transformed. Then you have not partaken of the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account. Because when you receive that righteousness, there is always a desire to live out righteousness to conform to the image of your Savior. 1 John 3, 3 is very clear. Because everyone who has this hope fixed on him, that is that Christ will return again. And as a child of God, he will see Christ as he truly is. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you come this morning without a true hunger and thirst for righteousness? You like sermons, you like community, you like friends, you like events, you like Christian stuff, but you don't love righteousness. That's the hallmark of the true believer. That's the hallmark of actually being within the kingdom. Would you claim the righteousness of Christ on your behalf, justification? Then you will have, must have at some level, to some degree, a desire to look like Jesus practically, moment by moment and day by day. The two always go together. Justification is never found without sanctification as well. The Bible makes this clear. The righteousness of the kingdom includes then the righteousness of sanctification in which we now desire to have the righteousness of God lived out through us as a result of the Holy Spirit transforming our inner man. And the beautiful thing is that we can now perform acts of righteousness because our heart has been renewed, our desires have been changed, our motivations have been properly directed in the Spirit of God that empowers us to live out true righteousness. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking as in food and drink physically, 
but it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom is to be, this continual pursuit of a practical righteousness. Well, how then will we practice this? That would be our next point. How do we practice a hunger and thirst for righteousness? What can you do to satisfy this hunger? And again, I would ask you, before I even enter into this step, as you sit here this morning, is that the yearning of your heart? And I believe that for, I would imagine most all of you, it is. You hear me saying these things, and you're like, yes, that's what I want. I want to be righteous. I wrestle, I struggle. I'm not holy as I want to be, but that's what I want. Tell me more. I affirm Matthew 5, 6. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. I just wrestle to get there. If that's you, then I have much to say. If that isn't you, then you need to go back to what I just said. You haven't received the righteousness of Christ. You have not been poor in spirit. You have not mourned over your sin in a fundamental sense. And so you need to do that first. And you need to cry out to God for forgiveness of your sin in a most fundamental way. Then you can take hold of these things that I, that the scripture will tell us as to how we can practice this hunger and thirst because it's practiced. We don't have to practice being hungry and thirsty physically. It just happens. But because we are sinful, because sin blinds us and it takes the edge, as it were, it takes the edge off our hunger, we need to practice. And so how will we practice? How will we cultivate this hunger and thirst? And there's nothing better, by the way. I want you to become more hungry and more thirsty all of your life. And if you've been a believer for very long, or maybe for many years, you're sitting here going, that's exactly what it's like. The longer I'm a believer, the more I want to look like Jesus. And in fact, what has happened to you is that you look at your life and you go, what I thought I was before, the, the things that I, in which I thought I was righteous and holy, and I didn't really necessarily hunger and thirst for more righteousness in those areas, what I've found is that I grow older in Christ, that I'm not as righteous as I thought I was. And so I have a greater hunger and thirst in those areas, even that I thought maybe earlier on, well, you know, I've pretty much taken care of that. What you find as you grow in Christ is that you have a greater passion, even in the areas that you thought, well, I, I was, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty good at that. You know, I think, I, I believe by the grace of God that I'm a better husband after 25 years than I was when, I'm start, when I started. I think there's objective things that I could point to and my wife would certainly point to. But as I consider the nature of being a husband and, and all that the Lord would have for me, I feel worse about it. I, I'm, I'm not ready to give myself husband of the year, whereas maybe years before, I'm a, I'm, I'm a pretty good husband. I wanted to wear the shirt around. So my wife would say, yeah, you're right. But what I realize is I'm less, even though I'm more. And that's what a true hunger and thirst for righteousness ought to be. And we adopted our two little girls from Haiti about three and a half years ago, four years ago now, I guess. And, and we thought, well, maybe we're right at the point where we're physically just still able to care for them so they won't run us into the ground. And we have reached a point in our parenting where we're good enough at it that we can do this. And we were wrong on both counts. We don't have enough energy. They're running us into the ground in a blessed, joyful, wonderful, very tiring way. But we also discovered that we weren't nearly as good a parents as we thought we were. And yet that should have been evident and obvious to us all along the way. Because even though we're increasing in our ability to parent, we are seeing our lack of righteousness in that area. So how will you cultivate this? How will you become more hungry and more thirsty after righteousness? Well, first, you will need to cultivate a passion for God. This is, this is most basic, and you're going to have to cultivate it. Because of our sin, it does not spring from us without work. Now, this is the beauty of heaven, by the way. Let me just jump ahead for a moment. Can you imagine what it would be like not to have anything blunting your hunger and thirst after God? Well, that's heaven. 
And not only will there be nothing in you that keeps you from longing for him, there will be nothing in the world because he'll have recreated it. There'll be nothing that keeps you from him directly. And so all of eternity will be the constant, constant fulfillment of a hunger and thirst, which never ends. What an incredible thought. Full hunger and thirst continually and full satisfaction, as we will see. It's a bit of a conundrum. It, it seems like they're opposite, but they're not. Always hungry and thirsty, always being satisfied. What an incredible thought. So you must cultivate a passion for God. That is, you must study, meditate, understand, appreciate, and rehearse the person and work of God. And then you must apply that person and that work in specific ways to your life so that work flows out through you. Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. That's not talking about a deer kind of walking along and saying, oh, I need a drink. And, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, graciously and beautifully walking to the water and taking a sip. The picture there is of the deer being chased by the wolf, chased by the hunter. And, and at a point where it is, is, it will die if it doesn't get a drink. And yet feeling like if it stops for a moment, it will be consumed. The deer pants for the water brooks and, and, and must have a drink or it literally will die. Well, that's the way our soul should pant for God. My soul thirsts for you going on in Psalm 42, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? This is what the soul that longs and hungers and thirsts for righteousness longs to do, to be in the presence of God. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. When you thirst for God, you are thirsting for his righteousness because that is who he is innately. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I can't receive righteousness here. There's no holiness to be found in this world. I need it from you, God. I long for it. I yearn for it in every way. You, you, you see how this, this analogy, this metaphor of hunger and thirst is applied to pursuing God. You guys, do you have that kind of passion after God? If you don't, there's one of two problems. You don't know him. The Spirit of God doesn't live within you because if He does, there is some measure of passion after God because the Spirit of God is passionate after God the Father and God the Son. But it may be simply that you are untaught, ignorant of the very character and nature of the God who saved you. And the more ignorant you are of His character and nature, the less you thirst after Him. And so you are to immerse yourself in him, to know who he is, to know what he's done. It's why you read scripture day in and day out. It's why a Sunday sermon is not sufficient. It's why Sunday night fellowship groups are great, but will not provide you, will not satisfy the hunger and thirst. You cannot pant after God once a week. It's continual. And you pour into his word because it's the only place where you can find the reality, the objective truth of his character. And you yearn for him and you long for him. Are you driven to your quiet time that you call it in the morning? Are you driven because of a passion after God? You've got to know who he is. And every part of scripture reveals something about the character and nature of God. Everything. There's nothing there that does not in some way point to the greatness of your God. So cultivate a passion for God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Perhaps one of the misused, most misused Christianese phrases that could possibly exist. It's generally seen as some kind of mystical thing. I'll just, I'll, I'll fix my eyes. I'll, I'll maybe think really hard about Jesus and something will happen. You, guys, you ought to think really hard about him, but the things that you think really hard about Jesus are the objective truths of who he is and what he's done. This then leads to a subjective joy, as it were, an experience of 
the presence of Christ because of your understanding of the person and work of Christ. The two always go together. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is really to hunger and thirst for the person of Christ. He's the living bread and water that are necessary to satisfy the hunger of our souls. He offers himself as such to a world in desperate need of him as the bread of life. You know what Jesus told the woman at the well, John 14, 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will come in, will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What's the water? The water is the spirit of God washing and cleansing your soul from sin and replacing it instead with the desire for righteousness, for holiness. That's what it is to know Jesus. That's what it is to experience Jesus. It's to experience a passion for holiness that washes over your soul because it is that which enables you to have a true relationship with God. They cannot be separated. You cannot say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love righteousness. He is righteousness. And the joy of his presence is found only in righteousness. So we are washed with him and the wash, the water that he gives, true holiness actually satisfies. And when we pursue it, we ever increasingly hunger and thirst for it. And yet are ever increasingly given what we long for, that holiness, which God desires. Revelation 21, 6 And he said to me, that is Jesus. He said, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. But understand that as you take that water for the first time, you then continually participate or partake of drinking in that fountain of holiness provided for you and you pursue the righteousness of Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now to pursue this hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you must also fellowship with God's people. You see, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we long to be with the people of God, for it is in their presence that we see the righteousness of God displayed in practical ways. You see it propositionally in Scripture. You see it practically in the person of other believers, because Jesus is not walking in physical form on this earth. He is walking through the individual believers. If you don't spend time with God's people, you won't hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you have an ever-increasing hardness of heart towards it. Hebrews 3.12 is very clear here. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day and as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I, again, I loved my time being with Elisa for 10 days in Hawaii. But we would have to be very careful. We will have to. We must be very careful that we wouldn't revel in our togetherness apart from the people of God because we would quickly fall into sinfulness. So many people on the island of Maui pursuing a holiness, or excuse me, pursuing a happiness that they could not find. And they will not find. Hundreds of honeymooners, thousands, those celebrating their anniversaries, so many of them will never find true happiness because they are seeking it apart from the people of God. Some believers who do not love the church and therefore are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
So fellowship with the people of God if you want to hunger and thirst for righteousness because they live it out for you. And the beauty of holiness is seen in the people of God. Isn't that amazing? You say, I want to see it in Jesus. Well, you can see it in the pages of scripture, but then you see it as the people of Jesus live out his righteousness before you. And it's essential for you to do. You must flee from sin, of course. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness hate anything that keeps them from the object of their hunger. So they flee sin with the greatest of haste and urgency. Again, in Hawaii, we were up on top of the volcano. It's not an active volcano in Maui. It's that, that one, the last time it erupted was in 1790. But I tell you this, had that volcano begun to erupt and the lava started coming up towards us, what would we have done? Run for our lives. We would have said, that's interesting lava. In fact, I would like to touch the lava and maybe I'll get in the lava. Now, in some twisted way, perhaps we could have thought that. But in our true understanding, we would have run. We would have fled from it. Well, that's what sin ought to be to you. It is hot lava. It will consume you and it will misshape you from the form of holiness and righteousness that you so desire. If sin provides you with your pleasure and joy, then you will seek the fulfillment of your hunger and your thirst in sin. You can't hunger and thirst for both sin and righteousness at the same time and in the same way. Because we're sinful, we can love sin. But that should ever increasingly be burned away by a love of righteousness. 1 Timothy 6, 11, Paul tells Timothy, flee from these things, you man of God. That is worldly lusts. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Flee from sin. Five, meditate on the word of God. The word of God contains all the attributes of God and all the principles that lead to our being able to take on the character and nature of God. Thus, we continually meditate on his word so that we might understand and apply its principles. You know the verse I'm about to quote to you, don't you? Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure, righteous, holy? How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. It's the most basic verse in the Bible, practically. Are you doing it? Meditating on the word of God. It says, your word then, I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. How much time do you spend treasuring the word of God in your heart, thinking on it over and over, not just reading it, not even just studying it, but then thinking on it over and over, memorizing it, marinating in it, meditating on it. To the extent that you do that, you will love righteousness. To the extent that you do not, you will lack a hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, in case you were wondering, the New Testament version of Psalm 119.9, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Did you forget that? The very thing that we need is found only in the pages of scripture as illuminated by the spirit of God and empowered by him. You need righteousness. Scripture brings it because everything relates to righteousness. You must think righteously, affect righteously, parent righteously, husband righteously, be a member of the church righteously, work righteously, use the computer righteously, go on the internet righteously. Everything must be righteous. And when you hunger and thirst for it, you have what you need. Meditate on the word of God. Oh, Six, obey the word of God. Some of you, fairly good meditators. Think a lot about the word of God, love sermons. You got John MacArthur in your iPad every, you know, every time you go to, go, to the, go to the store. Listen to Paul Washer every five minutes. Man, Paul's great. 
He's great. Tell me God is wonderful. Are you doing what they say? That is what scripture says. How practically is it being lived out in your life? First John 3, 7. Just read the book of First John this week. It's so practical. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. You claim the righteousness of Christ in justification? Are you practicing the righteousness of God in sanctification? You can't have one without the other. Someone's going, no, I don't. How about 1 John 3.10? By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor the one who does not love his brother. I didn't say it. John said it. You're of the devil if you don't practice righteousness because the devil hates righteousness. He hates anything that looks like the character of God. I could go on. You know I could. I'll spare you. Seven, properly respond to discipline. Ooh. What's discipline for, congregation? Precious sheep. (laughs) What's it for? It's to make you righteous. So the discipline of God comes upon you in the form of trial, in the form of his working through circumstance and through people to confront your sin, to burn it away, and we're to respond properly so that we can be righteous. We love this. Hebrews 12, 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, you see, knows that little phrase? You see, I keep spanking my littlest. You're like, good, she needs to be spanked if you know my littlest. She spent two weeks, my two littlest ones, with, with the winds. Pray for the winds as they recover. No, guys, I, I, you know, I tell stories about my two littlest. Guys, they're wonderful and special. Ask the winds, they'll tell you that. They'll also tell you that they need to be trained a little bit more by discipline. And so as, at each time, as my little one comes into the bathroom, and we, that's the place we do our discipline, and I look her in the eyes and truly grieve, and I'm saying, don't you get it yet? I'm about to bring pain to you. And you forgot that when you entered into your sin, you're not being trained by my discipline. You're forgetting. You're not allowing the pain and the punishment that comes to you to change your behavior. Would you please stop so that I don't have to keep bringing this pain? And she just doesn't get it yet. I'm praying that she will. And so it happens over and over. But how about you? How about you? God constantly bringing these things into your life and you're not being trained. And you go back to the sin like a dog to its vomit, like a pig back to the mud, thinking that you'll somehow find pleasure there. And God brings his gracious, loving discipline to say, stop, because you can find no fulfillment here. And you reject it. And you say, God, why are you harming me? God, why isn't my life better? Why are you doing these things to me? And he's saying, because I love you. And because you need my righteousness more than you need an easy life. That's what you need in my kingdom. Respond properly to discipline. Put off and put on. Kind of summarizing all of this. We seek to put away sin as explained to us in scripture, but then we must put on the corresponding habit of righteousness so that we might progress in that righteousness. You can't just run from sin. The Bible says in Ephesians, let him who steals, steal no, steal no longer. Stop stealing. Are you a thief? Stop. But, Rather, let him labor, performing with his hands what is good, so that he will have something to give to one who has need. The thief doesn't stop being a thief when he puts away his thievery. He only stops being a thief when he starts working for the benefit of others, because that's the opposite of stealing from them. So, how is it for you? 
I'm not yelling at my wife anymore. Are you speaking gracious, kind, gentle, helpful words to her? Can't just put off one and not put on the other. And so if you want to truly hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you put off and you put on. And as you do that, you want to do it ever increasingly. Well, I need to finish. So what's the fulfillment? What are the results of a hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, it's directly in our text back in Matthew chapter 5. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, what is the result? You will be satisfied. It's an absolute guarantee. There's a satisfaction that comes now, daily, as we pursue righteousness and see the character of God formed within us. There's an eternal satisfaction which will come. But I, I will tell you that even when we receive our new bodies, no longer sinful in and of themselves, you will not stop hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's just there will be no barrier to your continual satisfaction. That's the joy of it. And so what is that satisfaction? Well, it is joy. Psalm 4, 7, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. After the harvest, when the people party and they feel all satisfied because they've drunk their fill. Man, talk about drinking and eating. Went to Hawaii, they said, we want you to gain 50 pounds and we want you to drink from the bar as much as you can. Lisa and I were like, we'd rather not gain 50 pounds and we want nothing to do with the bar. Because we understand that that will bring no true happiness. N nothing better for the people there. A little happiness through food, a little happiness through drink. But see, our joy doesn't come from that. And what a joy that it doesn't because those things are temporal. Guys, true joy comes only from righteousness. And that's part of the satisfaction. Do you like joy this morning? It means that you're searching for it in the wrong place. Some of you are actually pursuing holiness and you're not finding joy in it because you're misunderstanding what true joy is. Would you stop? And would you enjoy holiness? I was talking to people, some people the other day, their marriage, they're, they're, they're staying together, they're doing a good job, they're, they're holding together, but they're finding no joy in it. They're doing the right thing and they're wishing they had something else. Like, what you're doing what's right. If you would find joy in what you're doing that was right, you would have more strength and joy to go on and do more that is right within that. Fulfillment you will find, what is truly desired will be obtained. Psalm 107 verse 9, he's satisfied the thirsty soul, the hungry soul, he's filled with what is good. You will find fulfillment as you pursue righteousness. And then lastly, what is found in this to be satisfied is to be secure. You see, part of our satisfaction is knowing that in holiness and righteousness, security is found. We don't need to wonder where our next meal is coming from for holiness provides a continual feast. I'll close with Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear. Come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies that I have shown to David. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the precious privilege of having received your righteousness. And Lord, I pray that each one of us who has entered into your kingdom by being clothed in the righteousness of Christ would long to live out the righteousness that you have then implanted within us by the power of your spirit. And that we would love to look more like you and that we would find our fulfillment, that we would find the 
the slaking of our thirst and the provision for our hunger and being conformed to your image. And that we would be a more joyful, secure, and fulfilled people as we pursue the principles of your word for the purpose of looking more like you. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.